the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Oxentenko's message today is entitled, The Two Prophets and the Beast from the Abyss. That's The Two Prophets and the Beast from the Abyss. You can find it online at ReachingYourHeart.com. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, you can call us at any time, 24-7. Here's the phone number, 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Here now is our pastor teacher, Michael Oxentenko, with the two prophets and the beast from the abyss. Today's Reaching Your Heart. In Revelation 10, the unsealing of Daniel after 1798 was pictured as sweet in the mouth, but bitter in the stomach. Revelation 10 provides a perfect description of what history has called the bitter disappointment of 1844. Those Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Catholics, Christian connectionists, and others who went through the great disappointment of 1844 were right in their belief that Jesus is coming soon, but they were very mistaken concerning the time for his return. They seriously misunderstood the prophecies that pointed to the time of the end. And they also misunderstood the nature of the sanctuary. They didn't realize that they were not keeping all of God's law either. They thought they were a commandment-keeping group of Christians, but they had failed to understand that the fourth commandment is vital for Christians at the end of time. And so they failed to understand that the time of the end is not the end of time, but it is the time of the end, and they must prepare themselves and help prepare their world for the end of time. So we are living the last days when the gospel can go to the entire world. It is the time of the end. Now, what does that mean in practical terms? It means that we are living in a glorious time of opportunity. I mean, if you could invest in something that was a winning investment on Wall Street, who wouldn't do that? If you knew it was a 100% chance you could triple your, your money investment, wouldn't you go ahead and invest in that if you could ethically do so? Sure you would. Friend, we are living in a time of opportunity when you can invest in God's truth, you can invest in the Bible, you can invest in sharing Jesus with your friends and neighbors, and it can make a difference. And there's a 100% chance that God will be with you when you do that. A time to understand, that's what we're living in, the time of the end, when the open book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, that is a revelation of Jesus Christ, they mingle together and there is fire in the air, there's life in the experience. We can affect our world for Christ. Immediately following the great disappointment of 1844, the Bible describes that a global prophetic movement would arise out of the ashes of 1844, and it would impact the world directly in its proclamation of the gospel. Revelation 10, verse 11. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now the word again means they got it wrong the first time. They had to grow in their understanding. But the second time it would coalesce into a global energy that would affect the world and the Christian church everywhere on planet earth. 
The key word in verse 11 is the word again. The Millerite movement was right on most things, but wrong on the nature of the sanctuary and the time for Jesus Christ's return. They had the right experience. They wanted him to come. They'd invested their energy into it, but they had the wrong understanding of the meaning of the sanctuary. So as soon as the book of Daniel was unsealed in Revelation 10, the Bible describes a world kingdom system, a beast that comes out of the abyss, right where the locusts came from in the fifth trumpet, that challenges the authority of the Bible at the very time when God has chosen to unlock the secrets of the book of Daniel. So as God is unsealing the book of Daniel, we see in Revelation 11 a global threat to prophetic truth, to Bible truth that comes up around the same time. And the drama of this conflict is the story of two prophets, which are called the two witnesses. Revelation 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told... Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for how long? What does it say? Forty-two months. Very clear. And I will grant my two witnesses, the two prophets, power to prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands which stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, sometimes you can read this stuff and you can say, Pastor Mike, what on earth is going on there? I mean, the Bible has been so arranged that if you want to read in a quick kind of fashion and you're not going to study and compare it with other parts of the Old Testament, you just frankly won't understand it. So Jesus deliberately wrote the book of Revelation through the inspiration that he gave to John in such a way that it would require us to get on our knees, it would require us to read our entire Bible, to have an open heart and an open mind so we can understand what is happening. I mean, this is not easy prophecy to understand, but once we attack it in the right attitude, we ask for the Holy Spirit, we are studying the Bible diligently, we can in fact understand this prophecy. The bitter disappointment of 1844 was rooted, as I said before, in a misunderstanding of the nature of the sanctuary. And if you look in verse 1, that's exactly what we're encountering after Revelation 10, a focus upon the temple of God. The 2300 year for day prophecy of Daniel 8.14, we learned previously, started in the autumn of 457 B.C. with the decree of Ezra 7 of Artaxerxes Longeminus. And it ended in the autumn of 1844, 2,300 prophetic years later. Daniel 8, 14, And he said to me, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now the entire disappointment of 1844 was over this verse. Because they thought the sanctuary was the earth to be cleansed with fire. It was not. They were looking to the world, not to heaven, for the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so they were looking for Jesus to come with fire to cleanse the earth and to then destroy the earth as we know it, to save his people and to take them home to glory. They had a misunderstanding of the prophecy. Leading up to 1844, most Christians had believed that the sanctuary was the earth to be cleansed with fire. They had forgotten that Jesus Christ is our great high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. So they were like the disciples of old, looking for him to do something here, failing to recognize that he was getting ready to do something there before he comes back to here. They had thought it was the end of time, not realizing it was the time of the end. And so they had the events wrong in their mind. After the bitter disappointment of 1844, a small group of Christians... 
Now, some people say, Pastor Mike, aren't you afraid to be aligned with a small group of Christians? Now, if you go back to the first century, wasn't Jesus Christ aligned with 12 apostles and 70, a small group of Christians? Did he not call them the little flock? Am I right or wrong on that? He said, don't be afraid, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I mean, after the medieval captivity of 1260 years, after the church had been battered and beaten, he didn't start out with a massive multitude of theologians and Bible expositors and great orators. He started out with about 50 people who had weathered the great disappointment of 1844, who had the right attitude who were willing to follow Christ, who wanted to take the Bible and live it, believe it, and do what it teaches. So after the great disappointment of 1844, about 50 believers who weathered that disappointment discovered that their experience was perfectly produced in Revelation 10. When they saw that little book that was sweet and then bitter, and they read through the bitter disappointment described in Revelation 10, and they compared it to Daniel 12, they had taught Daniel 12 before the great disappointment of 1844. They had actually taught that this book would be unsealed leading up to 1843-4, but they had failed to link it with Revelation 10 that said it would start out sweet it would end bitter in the belly. And when they read that, they said, the Holy Spirit has been guiding us. God's word has not failed us. We have gone through an awful thing, but we must again prophesy to many nations, kindreds, tribes, and tongues. There is truth for God's people at the end of time. And they also discovered that immediately following the disappointment of Revelation 10, Revelation 11 verse 1 describes the truth about the sanctuary. The text says in Revelation 11:1, 1, rise up and measure the temple of God. In the Bible, the word measure is a synonym for the word judgment. They discovered that they were living in the hour of God's judgment, that something had happened in heaven that would change the way that people live on earth to prepare for the coming of Christ. Matthew 7, verse 1, Jesus drew the analogy, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And the measure you give, what does it say next? The measure you give will be the measure you get. So if you measure out judgmentalism towards someone, if you're unwilling to reconcile that someone, now to reconcile it takes two reasonable people. It really does. But if you're willing to not measure someone negatively in your mind, God will not measure against you in time judgment. He will be there to have mercy for you. So measurement and judgment are synonyms. So when it says rise up and measure the temple of God, it means that time of judgment has come for the house of God at the end of time. The church itself must measure up. It must come back to Christ. It must be faithful to apostolic truth. It must turn its heart back to the Bible and stop this subjectivity kind of religion. The religion of the Bible that brings grace and peace through Jesus Christ must be reborn at the end of the captivity of the Middle Ages. The judgment of Revelation 11, 1 to 3 involves three necessary actions. Action number one, the text says measure the temple. In Revelation eleven nineteen, the Bible says God's temple is in heaven. It was opened. So that means the judgment described in Revelation 11, 1 is not concerning the earthly sanctuary as such. It's pointing to something which occurs in the heavenly sanctuary. So the Millerites got it wrong. It was not the earthly sanctuary that was to be cleansed or judged. It was something in heaven that was meant to happen. The heavenly judgment began in the year 1844 as described in Revelation 10 and Revelation 11, 1. Number two. 
The text says, measure the altar. In Revelation 8, 3 and 9, 13, the altar stands before the throne of God in the heavenly sanctuary. You know, as Christians, we don't worship at an earthly altar. The Bible is very clear that if you come to a place and a priest or a preacher calls that an altar of sacrifice, that he has denied the fundamental teaching of what Christ has accomplished at the cross for you and me. It is very clear in the book of Revelation, Revelation 8, 3 and 9, 13, that the altar that we have, the altar that we focus upon, stands in heaven before the throne of God, and Christ is at the altar in behalf of every believer. So we should, by faith, turn away from earthly counterparts and look directly to Jesus as our great representative. And so no mass, no earthly substitute on earth, be it Protestant or Catholic or anything else like this, can take away from the centrality of the truth that Christ stands at the heavenly altar praying for every believer and through the perfect sacrifice of Calvary. He has an argument for your acceptance that's better than what anyone else here can do for you. An earthly altar is an illegitimate altar in the Bible. The worshipers in this context are those who worship God through Jesus Christ who stands at the right hand of God as the guarantee of our acceptance before him. Necessary action number three, the text says measure or judge those who worship there. Revelation 11.2 says exclude those who do not worship in the sanctuary. So it's very clear here that this pre-advent judgment is not a judgment of everyone. It is a judgment for God's people because the unbelievers are excluded from it. The context indicates that this heavenly judgment has to be an exclusive judgment because the concern at the end of time is to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord. Unbelievers are left out because they belong, as it says, to the outer court. They don't go into the sanctuary. They don't care about the work of Christ. They've never claimed him as Lord. They don't want him as Savior. And so their judgment is reserved for the end of the millennium when the great white throne will appear and God will judge people out of the books. But this one is a personal judgment in favor of God's people that is, in fact, for their good. Revelation 11, 18, and 19 describes the pre-advent judgment in heaven in clearest detail. Look at verse 18. The Bible says, The nations raged, but thy wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. And then it tells us which dead it's talking about. For rewarding thy servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear thy name, both small and great. And then it also has an impact on earth for destroying those who destroy the earth. The Greek there is literally for spoiling those who spoil the earth. In Revelation 19, the very first three verses, the one who spoils the earth is the great harlot church system that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So it is to bring that system down as well. The judgment starts with the righteous dead described here as the prophets and saints, and it ends with the righteous living. It starts with those who have died to reward them, and then it moves on to those who fear thy name, both small and great. Now look at that word fear, and look at the word died. Is the word died a past tense or present tense uh, verb in your Bible? It's past tense, isn't it? And what about the word fear? Is that a past tense or present tense verb in your Bible? Fear, not feared. It's present. So the judgment moves from the dead to the living in the seventh trumpet. It moves from those who have died to reward them to reward those who are struggling for faith in the mark of the beast trial at the very end of time who are alive when Jesus will return. So in this context, the judgment is conducted in the most holy place in Revelation eleven nineteen. When the ark of his covenant is seen, it moves from the dead to those who are alive 
The most holy place here, obviously, is the focus of this heavenly pre-advent proxy judgment before Jesus returns. Let's read verse 19, Revelation eleven nineteen. And God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, voices, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. Let me ask you a very obvious question. What is inside the Ark of the Covenant? Does anybody know? You know that most Christians today don't know what was inside the Ark of the Covenant. But we know from the Bible that Ten Commandments were inside the Ark of the Covenant, right? So at the end of time, during the time of the end, if God opens up this most holy place and you can see the Ark of the Covenant, what is inside it is the Ten Commandment law of God. God is asking Christians to pay attention to His moral law, that it is not somehow obsolete at the time of the end. It matters a whole lot. Now, in 2 Samuel 6, verse 2, my devotions this morning, it was very clear. The Ark of the Covenant, as David was transporting it, it was called by the name of the Lord. In Revelation 14, 1, in contrast to the mark of the beast at the end of time, God's people will have the name of God and the name of the Lamb written on their foreheads, which includes the seal of the living God. So we know that the law of God is important in the sealing process of God's people because it has to do with an obedient, faith-filled life. So we find the focus of the law in the most holy place. In Revelation eleven three, the two witnesses prophesy for 1,260 days. We've already identified the 1,260 days as the 1,260 years allotted to the little horn church state kingdom of the Middle Ages. The 1,260 years started in the spring of 538 when the siege of Rome lifted, and it ended in 1798 when a new siege of Rome took Pius VI captive, ending the church-state fusion of the Middle Ages. We've also learned that this time period allotted to the little horn power would come to an end when the books were open and God's judgment set in heaven for his people. So in Revelation 11.3, the two witnesses, or the two prophets, prophesy in sackcloth. Has anyone ever put on sackcloth? Well, we used to when we were children. Well, I don't know if it's burlap. Does that count? Yeah, burlap bags. We'd put them around us and kind of cut holes for our heads and walk around them and the like. And we were doing it to have fun. Well, in ancient times they did it not to have fun, but because people had died. It was a sign of mourning. So during the 1260 years, they're dressed in sackcloth because it represents the persecutions in the Middle Ages. People have died at the stake for the Bible. People have been burned alive because they would not sacrifice the truth of Scripture. It's amazing. Back then, if you wanted to follow the Bible... You could count on the state being against you. You could count on the organized church being against you. And you were almost certain to die if you wanted to share Christ in a way that was not approved of by the official church. I mean, today, when someone comes to me and says, Pastor Mike, you know, I've learned these truths of the Bible. I'm a little scared to follow them. And I don't know if I really want to because it might cost me this or that in my life. I mean, just look at the rack of the Middle Ages. Look at those people who are singing in the flames. William Tyndall, who was strangled to death for translating the New Testament. And there are really no good excuses for not following the Bible in the days in which we live. And so the witnesses were clothed in sackcloth. Over 50 million people died at the hands of that medieval church state system, Middle Ages. And most of them died after the Council of Trent. In Revelation 11.4, the book of Revelation describes these two witnesses as lampstands and olive trees. Now, what does this mean? Two texts hold the key. Psalms 119.105. You've heard the song by Amy Grant. If you're a boomer, the younger kids don't even know who Amy Grant is. Right? Okay, I'm right. 
Thy word is a what? Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And she puts it to beautiful music. I wish I knew how to sing it. In Psalms 19, the word of God is pictured in association with this as the sun that journeys across the sky, exposing everything to its brilliant heat. It is the brightest of all the lamps of the heavens, and it represents the word of God that moves from east to west, from the dawn of time to the end of time, the brightest of all lamps. In Zechariah 4.2, we have the answer, the second verse. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps which are on the top of it. A giant menorah stick. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? In other words, what are the two olive trees? That's what the two witnesses are called. So what are they? Here is the answer, verses five and six. The angel who talked with me answered me, Do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Verse 6. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my what? Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. These two olive trees represent the word of God that brings the Holy Spirit into the life of believers. So in the Bible, a lampstand symbolizes the Word of God. And the two olive trees symbolize the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit comes through the Word of God. It doesn't come because some preacher lays hands on you. It doesn't come because a a person who's been ordained passes a special blessing onto you. That's magic, and God doesn't use magic in the church. It comes because you get on your knees, you study your Bible, and the Holy Spirit comes through the Scriptures as you find Christ in that way. In the Bible, the olive tree symbolizes the Word of God that provides the oil for the light of the believer so they can have light, the lamp of life in their lives. Without the Bible, without the Holy Spirit, the church is a dark place to be. So of necessity, the two witnesses must represent the Word of God in two prophetic phases. The first is the Old Testament. The second is the New Testament. The Old Testament has its emphasis with the book of Daniel prophetically. The New Testament, the book of Revelation, prophetically, both of these books speak of the 1260 years. So we have two witnesses, one before Christ, one after Christ. We also know in the ancient Jewish synagogue, there was a seat for Elijah and there was a seat for Moses because they represented the two witnesses. Of course, Elijah had brought down fire from heaven. Moses had turned the waters to blood. And that's exactly what the two witnesses are doing in Revelation 11. And they pointed to God's word. Who was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Was it not Moses and Elijah? So there was a seat for Moses and a seat for Elijah in the Jewish synagogue that corresponded to these lampstands. And when Christ sat down, when he was in the Jewish synagogue in Luke chapter 4, he sat down in his seat. It says they're all staring at him because he probably sat down in the seat of Moses, which meant that he was claiming to be equal with the word of God. And at that point, they picked him up. They took him out to stone him. Of course, he escaped because God had, it is his will that he would have a three and a half year ministry before his death. But the synagogue was full of imagery that we see here in Revelation chapter 11. So in the Old Testament, two witnesses were mandated by God in addition to the synagogue imagery, as the minimal legal requirement for the death penalty to be administered against someone who's guilty. So God has patterned it so 
that you have a prophetic witness on one side of a time prophecy. You have a prophetic witness on the other side of a time prophecy as two witnesses. So if you don't obey God's word, if you don't obey his prophetic warning, the death penalty which comes through disobedience or rebellion can fall upon the unbeliever. In Deuteronomy 17.6, it says, On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, he that is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So at the end of the 1260 years, the judgment sits in heaven in Daniel 7. The books are opened. It is seen that a little horn power, a church-state union of the Middle Ages that has taken the place of Jesus Christ is guilty of the deaths of millions of believers who stood for the Bible and the Word of God. And in that heavenly judgment, that medieval church-state system comes down at the end of the 1260 years. The Bible says the beast dies and the death penalty is meted out. In Revelation 11:5, the death penalty falls on the very church state power that chose to harm the truths of God's word during the Middle Ages that put priests and others above the Bible. Thanks for listening today. If this message has ministered to you, remember there are many more just like it at reachingyourheart.com. If you're a regular listener to this broadcast or if you've just tuned in for the first time, and have been inspired by this sermon, and you'd like to partner with us to help keep these radio broadcasts on the air, you can simply call us at 1-888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-HOPE, day or night, 24-7. One of our team is available to assist you right now. We believe God is moving across the globe, touching lives and reaching hearts, and you are helping make this a reality with your gift of any amount. Spiritualism, in a variety of forms, is making its way through the Western world. The afterlife, the spirit world, and spirit mediums can be found in movies, best-selling books, and popular TV programs. These themes are making their way into our children's entertainment, even. We have this free book to help you understand things a little bit better, entitled Dark Tunnels or Bright Lights. This book candidly reveals biblical truth about this subject and pulls the curtain aside to reveal why there is so much interest in this topic. The book reveals the deceptions of spiritualism based on biblical teachings so that you can confidently discern truth from error as the topic continues to gain momentum across all levels of society. Now, this book is absolutely free. You can simply call us at 1-888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-HOPE, day or night, 24-7. Thanks for tuning in, and we pray that God is reaching your heart and growing you up in Christ through these messages. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.